so dear friends, um, I am going to offer a short intro um, for our guest tonight, guest speaker, Dharma teacher John Bell, and then I will um, turn things over to him. Um, so um, let's see, grab it up here. Can everyone still hear me okay? Okay. So John Bell has been a student of Thich Nhat Hanh since 1982, and he ordained in the Order of Interbeing in 2001, and is a Dharma teacher in the Plum Village tradition. He has been facilitating the Mountain Bell Sangha in the Boston area since 1997, and offers retreats around the country, writes and publishes, and currently serves on the Earth Holders Community Caretaking Council. He also formally served on the Arise Core Group and the CTC of the North American Plum Village Dharma Teacher Sangha. In his wide world work, he is a founding staff and former vice president of Youth Build USA, which is an international nonprofit that provides learning, earning, and leadership opportunities to young people from low income backgrounds. He is an author, lifelong social justice act activist, international trainer, facilitator, partner, father, and grandfather. And I'm gonna put his blog link in the chat box for those who would like to follow up more about John. Um, but with that, I think at this point, I will, will turn things over to you, John. And once again, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We, we really appreciate um, having you with us. Uh, thank you, Nicole. Um, wonderful to room together on Dharma Teacher's Retreats. Always loved his loving nature, his folksy wisdom, uh, his humor. And AJ, I see AJ on the line. AJ and I have had a chance to work together in different white awareness works. Um, I don't know if I've met any of the rest of you. I am calling in from um, the traditional lands of the Wampanoag people, commonly called Boston now. And um, uh, it's uh, nine, what is it, 9.52, my time, almost past my bedtime. So this is an experiment, which is, uh, I've never given a Dharma talk this late, so we'll see how much, how much the Dharma remains <laughs> as we go forward. Um, I am happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I am happy to be here, even though we don't know each other. You know, we sometimes even take our sanghas for granted. But it's nothing to sneeze at. A sangha is a wonderful, wonderful uh, container, uh, a vehicle for our liberation, a support for our lives. I think uh, I'm sure most of you know that, but uh, I just, you know, I get to drop into sanghas from time to time. And it's wonderful to meet people on the same path. It's wonderful. Um, I'd like to. Um, I'll start with a reading of a poem. Some of you may have seen this. I think the name of this talk, Nicole, is The Political Life of Our Nation as a Door to Awakening, something like that. So this is a poem that uh, by an OI member named uh, Zung Vo Zung, 
I think he's a pediatrician, young pediatrician in Vancouver. And he was uh, moved to write this about the current situation, which I think captures a lot. You might just want to close your eyes for a moment. And uh, sometimes uh, I encourage people that uh, in this case, I can come more into your room and be more present. Sometimes little pictures don't quite, you know, get that sense of the person. So if that's helpful. I can't breathe, said George Floyd, the knee of 400 years of racism on his neck. I can't breathe, said the woman with fear in her eye as she was put on to a ventilator. I can't breathe, said the nurse, exhausted after a long shift, sweating under a hot surgical mask and foggy goggles. I can't breathe, said the 125,000 dead Americans, a nation and a world in mourning. I can't breathe, said cities choked in smoke from a planet on fire. I can't breathe, said the earth, suffocating under a blanket of carbon emissions. Breathe, my dear, said the Buddha of our time, reminding us of the way to love and healing and transformation. Breathe, my dear, said the beloved community, grieving and waking up together. Breathe, my dear, said Mother Earth, and let my oceans and mountains and forests embrace you. Right now, when it seems so hard to breathe, right now, just breathe. So the bells of mindfulness are ringing, aren't they? Is anybody here kind of reeling and spinning in the chaos? Anybody here feeling a lot of feelings like fear or anger or grief or confusion or numbness or don't know what to do or I wish I could do more? Yeah. Uh, welcome to the human community. Here we are. I would like to offer some practices that I've found useful to help me navigate the swirling waters of change. Maybe they'll, some of them will be useful to you. I hope so. So the first one is, and you're gonna think this is so foundational, so trite almost. The first one is that interbeing is the reality. Uh, healing our racial wounds, for instance, is not separate from healing our bodies or healing the earth's wounds or healing our inner child. It's all together. It's like if you start pulling that proverbial thread in a fabric, everything is connected to it. So just to, that, that, you know, it helps me to know that for instance, when I ask, well, what should I do now? Where should I put my time? What's the best, what's the most important thing to do given all the things that are coming down? Well, in a way that's a false choice that's caught in dualistic thinking. 
for example, is it more important to uh, eliminate racism, uh, stop climate change, restore democracy, uh, heal our trauma, uh, teach children mindfulness, eat a plant-based diet? You see what I mean? These are all, these are false choices. All of these are important. They're all bound together. And wherever you start, it's connected to everything else. So just, I think it's helpful for me to relieve myself of that feeling like, oh my God, what's the most important thing to do? Which brings up another piece, which is to use that John Kabat-Zinn um, book title, wherever you go, there you are. So to everything, to anything that we do, we bring ourselves, we bring our, uh, <laughs> our good stuff, our habit energies, um, we bring our capacities and our, our resistances, we bring our, our greeds, our fears. And so this is, why is this important? You know, we're looking at any event of the world or any activity in the world through all, all those multiple lenses. And it's pretty complex in some way. And the thing that I have to keep telling myself, reminding myself about any big issue of the day, the feelings I might have of despair or powerlessness or fear, those were there long before I knew anything about climate change or racism, or democracy for that matter. Because uh, all of us, I think I can say this, we're, we're born into a human family at a human, at a time in history. We grew up, um, no matter how good or benign our upbringing was, all of us, I think, saw things that we knew were wrong. They were violations of human relationships. And because we were little, we couldn't do anything about them. We were too small. We were powerless physically, actually. We didn't have the power. And so we had to eat that. We saw it over and over. In some way, we, it broke our heart, made us scared, made us confused, but we couldn't really stop it. And unless we had a chance to heal that as we got older, and most of us didn't, then we get to be our age, whatever age we are, and we project that out onto whatever the situation is. And we, and we have a tendency to say, oh, it's too big. It's too overwhelming. Uh, it can't change. I'm too small. And have you ever had those feelings? You know, uh, they're quite common because I think most of us are drenched in, to one degree or other, in feelings of powerlessness. Even Ty, he has a poem, um, I wish I had it handy, but he, he says, you, the, the, the most wondrous, miraculous thing, a creature, species, uh, are going around begging, going around uh, you know, wanting things, but you have treasure inside and to give. So we've already, he's got a little way of uh, pointing out that we're, we're just the smallest version of who we really are because we're smothered by lots of these feelings that we didn't ask for 
but are there. So what do we do with those things? To me, one of the um, fortunate things that I've done in my life is that I've, I've um, practiced a form of deep listening. We have deep listening in our practice, but this is a little more intense than we usually do. Every week, uh, my friend Fred and I get together for an hour and a half. Uh, we've been doing this for 35 years. Every week, we split 90 minutes. He listens to me for 45 minutes. I listen to him for 45 minutes. No advice, uh, no comments, no judgments. We just provide each other the sacred space to explore whatever is needing to be expressed. And I cry my heart out. I can get furious in the safety of that situation. I can feel the fear, fear sort of shakes through my body. I can laugh myself silly at light fears and embarrassments that, I, that, it, that it happened. And there's nothing that I can't explore and really look at deeply. And, you know, I have to say something here. In many Buddhist circles, emotions are suspect uh, because there's a fear that we'll get carried away by the story and mistake the story for the reality. But with mindfulness, you know, I say to myself, mm, uh, breathing out, I'm crying. Breathing out, I smile to my tears. And I give it this with the, the quality of mindfulness. I can hold that and not be afraid that I'm going to go too far, uh, forget the, in the grounding. So this has been a huge liberation process for me. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't tried it, to, with a friend, a partner, uh, somebody you trust, just to say, this crazy guy was giving a talk the other night and, uh, you know, he says he, they take turns listening to each other. So you could start with five minutes each. And if that seems pleasant enough, interesting, try 10 minutes each. Um, so just as an experiment, a practice of, of opening up, it's different than conversation. When you have a conversation back and forth, uh, I might say something that I need to get at. I need your attention to explore and feel the emotional impact of that. But it reminds you something and you say oh yeah that happened to me the other day blah 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 and you're off with your story dividing the time equally and this is not everybody's cup of tea so i'm not to try this but it's a good experiment so perhaps uh, you can think about that so here's another one that sounds um so fundamental uh, for us to, for me to contemplate impermanence, you know, um, we're, we're, we're about climate change a lot now and racial injustice, obviously, and rightly so, but take climate change, you know, the, <clears throat> the most disastrous ecological event that happened on the planet happened when a species, some of you may know this, uh, an organism Spread, spread around the, the globe at a very fast clip, giving off a noxious gas and destroyed almost all life then present. This happened 2.3 billion years ago. 
the organism was bacteria and the, and the gas it gave off was oxygen. Before that, it was, it was hydrogen. And the oxygen then allowed you and me and all other species now existing to emerge. The planet is in constant change, constant change and transition, as are our bodies, our families, our relationships, our government. So that long perspective, you know, it relaxes me. It doesn't mean that I just say, oh, well, whatever. But it's just that it's a constant change is happening. And it will never stop. Uh, a little closer to home in the political realm. For instance, um, the U.S. has survived um, a good number of corrupt and incompetent presidents. Uh, you might not know that the majority of African Americans were Republicans from the time of Lincoln up through Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And here's another one for the, those older among us. When I was growing up, the biggest fear that was um, perpetrated by, or perpetrated, talked about by our government was communism. Now, communism is, as a threat seems like a, a distant past. But just, I'm just noting, noting these kinds of things as the way things change. Um, Another practice I have is to direct <clears throat> compassion and loving kindness to those whose views are different from mine. During the 2016 uh, prime, presidential primary, uh, there were a lot of Democrats, uh, I'm sorry, Republicans running, you might remember, 17, 19 of them. And during a Sangha meeting once, I, I asked the Sangha members, which Republican candidate they had most compassion for. It was quite a challenge for many of the, many of the uh, Sangha members because we're caught in these perceptions, these polarized points of view. Uh, Ty says in, um, I think it's um, Love Letter to the Earth, he said, the earth nourishes and protects all people and all species without discrimination, without discrimination. That includes all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. That includes all political candidates and political office holders. That includes Black Lives Matter protesters and neo-Nazis who are out there protesting them. Without discrimination, we treat people with kindness and compassion. Doesn't mean that we agree, doesn't mean we say you can't do that here, not around me, not on this earth. Uh, we can take fierce uh, stands against injustice, but that we don't write people off, polarize them, say they're, they're uh, bad, send them to prison, re-education camp, we don't do that in our way of thinking. So for instance, how many of us have have offered uh, loving kindness meditation to Donald Trump? How many of us have imagined Mitch McConnell as a five-year-old boy, an innocent at one time? He was, something bad had to happen, some trauma. 
for Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell to end up uh, in the way they are now. They're not happy men. Now, it doesn't mean that we, uh, that I, for one, uh, want them to remain in office and continue uh, what I think are inhuman policies, practices, but I will always want to ask, invite them into a support group, uh, into a Dharma sharing family, to really listen to them deeply, uh, because they're part of them, they're my brothers. Here's another one that helps me a lot. Um, whenever I'm feeling, I'm in a group and I'm feeling better than, inferior to, judgmental about, critical of, disdainful of, um, scared of. Whenever I'm feeling one of those feelings, I know that I'm caught in what I call a habit of separation. It's conditioning to feel, oh, it's different. It's, you know, can't, it's not safe there. It's something other. And so, and I practice this a lot. I, I use gatas like, I vow to awaken from the delusion of separation, one of the key ones that ties off of this. Um, another one is I'm intimately connected to everything and everyone. And one, uh, one that I like, I first uh, started using this when I was in an airport once, years ago and noticed that I was starting to make up stories about all the people just waiting for planes. You know how you do that? Oh, why is he so fat? You know, what, what, what's his problem or her problem, you know? And uh, I realized I was caught in the, one of those habits of separation. So I, I began to say, look around the airport and say, this is my home and these are my people. This is my home and these are my people. And right away, it changed my relationship. A, a tenderness, real tenderness began to develop. And that's helped me a lot. This is my home, wherever I am. And these are my people, whoever I'm with. And it cuts into that, oh, you know, it's the fear. The, and and it is a, it's a practice. So I offer that one as a possibility. Um, a couple more here I'd like to share. So one is embodying the five mindfulness trainings ever more impeccably. This is where the rubber meets the road, where we apply our mindfulness practice to everyday living. So how, how am I practicing kind speech? I noticed, oh, I know it was a while back now. I noticed that I, I used sarcasm, especially around politics. Uh, I even sometimes do now. Like uh, my favorite two Lily Tomlin quotes, and I, I don't know that I should even say them here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna risk it. Uh, she says she's a. For those of you who may not know, she's a, a wonderful comedian. Political, politically active. Uh, one of them is, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets worse. <laughs> and the other is, and especially it seems true now to me in this current political environment, 
uh, she said, I try to be cynical, but the way things are going, it's hard to keep up. So uh, now I can say those, and I notice really there's a little edge there. There's a little separating myself. There's a little, you know, sarcasm is part of unkind speech. And I don't really want to do that. So I'm, I'm limiting my, the number of times that I, that I allow myself to be sarcastic. And then I still have a little inner, mm, no, not really. Uh, what is it Buddha was saying that kind speech, right speech is, you should only speak if it's true, if it's coming from a good intent, if it doesn't harm anyone else, and if it needs to be said. And if we followed the, those guidelines, we wouldn't speak much, really. So uh, there's a negative way that I've looked at these. Um, I want to just read this to you. I once wrote this about uh, the interconnection uh, of among the five mindfulness trainings. This is an, uh, a negative example. So if I'm angry and upset about the current political situation, I might be more likely to yell at my beloved, which I regret immediately. So I go eat some junk food to cover my own bad feelings, which in turn helps support the industrial food system, which contributes to the rates of obesity, heart disease, and depression, which drives up healthcare costs, which generates acrimonious, mean-spirited debate um, in the government about how best to contain costs, a debate which makes me still more angry and upset. Now, this is not exactly a causal chain, but I think you get the idea that, that our attitudes affect. And um, so practicing the five mindfulness trainings is really a, a protection of ourselves from some of the swirls uh, in the wide world of change. Two more, and then I want to share a short video with you. Um, Thai is very clear that meditation and action go together. He comes out of the cauldron of warfare, first the French war and then the, the US war in Vietnam. And he told his followers, you can't stay in the temple and just sit on the cushion. You can't achieve nirvana while the world is burning around you, a lotus in a sea of fire. Um, you have to have that grounding, but then we have to go out and help relieve suffering in very concrete ways, time after time. Uh, this quote that I, I like to use once, he said, once we see that something needs to be done, we must take action. Seeing and action go together. Otherwise, what is the point in seeing? And lastly, um, we can't be in this world alone and make any difference. And this is why I think Thai has put such emphasis on Sangha. Sangha and community is absolutely essential for us to cultivate, to be together. There's a beautiful um, quote I'd like from Thai which I think gets at this. This is from Finding Our, our uh, 
true heritage. It says, to take refuge, first of all, is to take refuge in the island of ourselves, and then in the island of Asanga. These islands are communities of resistance. Resistance does not mean to oppose others. It means to protect ourselves, like staying inside the house to protect ourselves from the weather or recently from the coronavirus. We resist being destroyed by society's pollution, noise, unhappiness, harsh words, and negative behavior. If we do not know how to take care of ourselves, we may get wounded and, and un, be unable to help others. If we join with others to build a sangha that can nourish and protect us and resist society's destructiveness, we will be able to return home. Many years ago, I suggested that peace activists in the West establish communities of resistance. A true sangha is always therapeutic. To return to our own body and mind is already a return to our roots, to our true home, to our true person. With the support of Sangha, we can do it. So change is upon us, for sure. And we don't know what this moment is, really. We don't know whether we're on the verge of breakdown or breakthrough. There's ample evidence for both. Maybe it is both. Um, and suffering and hope are, are just like that. And I'd like to end by sharing with you, do, um, Nicole, did you get my email? Do you have it set up? Or if you can share, if you can allow me to share my screen, maybe that's easier. Would you allow me to share the screen? You have to do something there. So I did already, I did set you up as a co-host. Oh, good. Okay. D is uh, that enough? I'm new at this part. <laughs> yes, I have to just find it here. Okay. <laughs> One second. Exit full screen. Uh, this is an interview uh, with Van Jones. Some of you may know him. He's a CNN correspondent now, uh, was on Obama's uh, administration as a climate policy uh, chief. He's done a lot of amazing things. This was uh, an interview uh, with Tara Brock, uh, although she doesn't appear on this video. And it happened about a week or so after George Floyd was killed. And I just have been so moved by this, by his, um, humanity and vulnerability, and the way that he embodies the suffering and the hope so beautifully. I hope I can uh, figure out how to, let's see, share, here it is, okay. Can you see it? Oh, wait a minute, I have to do, do one more thing, which is to, no, I have to go back. Stop sharing. <laughs> um, share the screen. Okay, here we go.
trying to move this, okay. I'm glad that we're doing this this week. Can you hear? Can if we hear? had done this um, a week ago, I probably couldn't have couldn't have been a part of it just because there was so much heartbreak. Um, I think the world saw something that's been happening uh, in our country for centuries. Um, it saw a black man lynched by a white man. Uh, that's what that was. That that video, and it broke us. It broke the black community to watch something like that happen. One minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. Starts calling out for his mother. His mother's been dead for years. Six minutes, urinating on himself, begging for his life. Fifteen times, I can't breathe. The community screaming in horror. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. These videos have been a part of American life now for almost seven, eight years. It was always, oh, well, it was a quick decision. The cops got to defend himself. He was talking back. He was fighting back. What do you want? What, what do you expect? You, know, you can't second guess the police. But this one, this one, filmed from beginning to end, stunned the world. And for all of the times that we have been lynched, we've never had a situation where a billion people could see it all at the same time on their smartphones. And it, it shoved a piece of glass into the eyeball of everybody on the planet and it hurt, it hurt them. Uh, people couldn't sleep having seen it. They couldn't rest. And if we had tried to have this conversation a week ago, uh, we probably couldn't have had it. But a miracle is taking place. A miracle is taking place. A continent of new common ground has emerged from beneath the waves where there are 20, 30, 40 million white Americans saying racism is real, more real than I thought. There's something wrong with our justice system. It's more broken than I knew. What can I do about it? As an African-American man, it's a miracle. It's all I've wanted. It's just an acknowledgement that what is happening is happening and that we need to do something about it. And now we're in the middle of something we don't know what it is. We don't even have a name for it. You know, the civil rights movement wasn't called the civil rights movement at the beginning. At first, it was just people trying to, to fix a problem. And later on, they called it the civil rights movement. We don't know what this is. Uh, NASCAR says they're not going to let Confederate flags fly anymore. The NFL is apologizing for not supporting Colin Kaepernick's peaceful protests years ago when he was trying to call attention to this. You have people, corporations across the world saying Black Lives Matter. What is this? We don't even know what, we don't know what to call this. 1964, uh, they called it uh, Freedom Summer when those students went south to register voters. Some were killed, some were beaten, but they changed history. 
but they didn't call it Freedom Summer then. They called it, it was two years later when a book came out called Freedom Summer. They didn't know they were in Freedom Summer. So we're in some awakening, some great awakening, where much more is possible than we had dared to hope for. Somebody killed the black man and everybody cares. It's a miracle. It's never happened. It's never happened. Somebody killed a black man and everybody cares. I wish my parents were here to see this. <laughs> 